0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz alto saxophonist, educator, leader, and a composer, Christopher Burnett. He was born in Olathe and raised in Paola, Kansas, and his latest album was 2014's Firebird, and that is one in a lineup of very memorable albums from a cad that started his professional career with military jazz bands. Going pro directly after graduating high school at 18 years old, he would go on to complete a full 22-year career performance performing, and touring with notable military bands. Over the course of his 40-plus year career, he has been around the world, recorded albums as a leader, taught at the college level, and co-founded the Artists Recording Collective. He's a strong pillar in the Kansas City jazz community, and he has so much to offer. It was an honor and a pleasure. He has many skills, and you're going to hear about him and stories. Please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Thank you for taking some time out for me today. I appreciate it.
1: Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. It's it's very much an honor, considering the type and caliber of artists that you interview and present, I I am honored to be among that number.
0: Wonderful. Thank you very much. So as we get ready to start here, I think I'm going to dive in here and kind of wrap this up in kind of a two-part question. A, what has been going on lately? And kind of talk to me about your latest album that was in 2014, Firebird.
1: Okay, I'll talk about uh, my career in terms of what I, what I what the parameters are. And as you know, musicians generally have to have something that subsidizes your art if you want to live like an adult. That's what yes. I think of. I have done that since the beginning of my professional career. Uh, As you know, I'm a retired military musician. I did a full career, 22 years, in military bands, and that was a musical job. I was fortunate to have that, but that also subsidized my life and my art. Everything that I did in the military musically, I did not enjoy, but there was a lot that I did enjoy. But it was a way for me to raise a family, two kids who are college graduates and on their own now as adults, a wife, of course. Benefits and a pension that comes out of it. So after leaving the military, fast forward to coming back home to Kansas City, prior to that, I, uh, my wife and I opened a retail music store right outside of the military post where we finished our career in, in South Central Missouri. After five years of doing that, we came back to Kansas City. But during the interim, while we lived in south-central Missouri, I had an adjunct position teaching the Jazz Studies program at the Rolla campus of the University of Missouri system. It's Missouri S&T, Science and Technology now, but it was University of Missouri-Rolla. Like we have University of Missouri-Kansas City. It was part of the University of Missouri system. That was my way to stay connected and vibrant on a level while I was in the Ozark theme, not really connected with something like the Kansas City Jazz scene or the New York jazz scene, coming back home after our kids graduated and after we closed the music store, the first thing that I wanted to do was learn about the Kansas City jazz community. So I sought out people who I knew could mentor me. I was forty five years old when I came back to Kansas City. so I had, I was a grown man. I had already had a successful career as an artist. I was established as a musician, but I wanted to be mentored by someone on the scene. And I was fortunate enough that a gentleman who's passed away now, Ahmed Aladdin, took me on as a student. And I, I studied with him. I, he taught me about Kansas City jazz. We talked about composing the different background I had. He had his approach. I met with him every Wednesday for like about five years. We went to his house and and it ultimately turned out to be a jam session. The first meeting, I set it up through his wife and I, I called their office, their home office, and she answered the phone and I said, I introduced myself and I said, I would like to see if I can take a lesson with him and talk with him. And she said, that's fine, and I had previously introduced myself by email so she had had a chance to go to my website and see who I was and she gave me the time and I went there and met them both great people and uh, he said to bring recordings things I'm working on in my horn so I brought that he listened to the recordings he listened to what I was play what I was working on and we talked a bit and then after after a brief conversation he looked at me straight in and He said okay so what do you want from me and I, I knew I was mature enough and old enough to know that, that that was not an arbitrary question. He was seeing where my head was at and where my motivation was at first. He already knew that I knew I could play. He already knew that I had a resume when I came to him. So he wanted to see where I was at as a person and an artist and where my heart was in the music and i didn't figure that this out until after of course but my first reaction was what was inside me and and i said mr aladdin and and this is comes from my own background of working with younger people i said you can hear what i don't know already that's what i came here for you know and and he just tilted his head like he always did and grinned and he says okay i'll see you next wednesday Okay. In, this time so and and that went on for five years, and then ultimately, after a few lessons, after him kicking my butt for like two or three lessons on pulling out this ridiculously hard music and just give me an idea of what I could pace or how what situations you might find yourself in or people may put you in, we just ended up jamming together. I'd bring over a tune that I wrote and and show it to him, and he'd start playing it, we'd work through it, we'd just play it and playing some of his music. It, it was a good friendship there for a while. I mean, and he really wanted to encourage me to integrate myself in the scene and do my thing. But he knew my personality, too. So he knew my personality as a service-oriented person and not seeking the limelight necessarily. But, but he always encouraged me to to make sure that I got out on the scene and I presented and and met other people and interacted with the people at all levels, you know, ages, and et cetera, et cetera. So that pretty much brings me to the point of what I was doing to get hired at the jazz museum. I I, I basically am a person, I don't wait for things to happen to me. I don't wait for people's per- permission to do what I do. I was a professional musician before I came to Kansas City. You know, and I wanted to contribute. That's where my heart is at. So I saw things that I wanted to do as an artist and a composer. I'm a composer, a, not a not a person that writes tunes or takes somebody's changes, like standard changes, and writes a a, 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 art, a contrafact over to something like that. I I studied composition purposely, and I I'm a BMI composer. I've written a lot of music, and some of it's in in my BMI catalog. So I I have all this music that I I have written, and I do continue to write. I wanted a platform to be able to document it. I I wanted to hook up first with some musicians in Kansas City who could appreciate sincerely my aesthetic and, and were artistic enough to go the direction I wanted to do, but also who wouldn't dial it in. And the first person I met like that musically he had been here almost a year longer than I had, a piano player named Roger Wilder, and I heard him play at the Battle of the Saxes. The, the Jazz Ambassadors used to have this thing over, they'd they do a fundraiser and call it Battle of the Saxons, it, it, and I remember this specifically. Bobby Watson was there, Gerald Dunn was there, Todd Wilkinson, Those were the, and Hal Melia were the fourth act of battling and this was like two thousand one. Gerald Space was on bass, Tommy Ruskin was on drums, and Roger was on piano. And of course Bobby doing his thing, you know, the the cats were, were playing. But I just was intrigued by the piano player. That's the first time I had heard Roger. I'd heard just about every other piano player in town. And I was used to that kind of playing, you know, and on a break, I had met Todd Wilkinson before, and I said, Todd, how's it going? He goes, oh, yeah, man, how you doing? He had let me sit in with, uh, I think, Boulevard Big Band, something like that. We used to rehearse at Harling, And one day I came there with my horn, and I didn't, I didn't know about it. A friend said, "Come, bring your horn and just come to check this out. So I brought my horn, and Todd let me sit in with the band in the sax section. He says, here, man, get in here and play. I'm going to go take a break. You know the way Todd is. it's <laughs> yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, he's pretty cool down to earth, you know. Yeah. You never know he was the monster that he is just by humble and, and, and unassuming it. At, at the break, I knew Todd, and, of course, I knew Bobby. I'd met him, and that's another story. But Todd said, yeah, yeah, he's relatively new. The piano player's relatively new. He seems like a nice cat. Go talk to him. So I went to Roger, and I had little business cards yeah, and I complimented him on his playing, introduced myself, and I gave him a card and I said, "Would you be interested in playing with me?" And he just, well, you know, Roger, "Yeah, sure, man." <laughs> and I said, "Okay." Yeah. So from that point on, my piano player of choice has always been Roger Wilder. And then the people that I I ended up with now who are in my quartet and quintet, I have a piano-based quartet with Roger Wilder. And my bass player of choice is Jeff Harshbarger, and then drummer is, uh, Clarence Smith. And then I play the sax, and it's just a straight up quartet, mostly my original stuff, and then the direction I like to play. And, and what I like about playing with Roger is he gets what I'm doing and more, and he doesn't patronize me. He does not, he, he does, he, when he comes to a gig, he engages the music sincerely like a lot of guys if you hire them hire them to play and they really aren't into what you're doing and they'll just dial it in they'll just play any crap to get the money that they want and that's what i call it so i pretty much weed it down to to who who i get along with and then then you have to get along with people and they have to get along with you like i have a certain personality and i have a certain way i am as a person as everybody does and then you you interact with people in the way that you interact and and I I think the people that I play with our personalities are parallel enough and and the direction they respect my direction and my motivation so I've got that piano bass group and then I have a guitar bass group with Charles Gachet on guitar Andrew Stinson a a great young bass player um, on, on acoustic bass and then Clarence again on drums and that's the group that I use. Like example when when we have Dino come, and that'll be the Dino Moffat Kansas City quintet. You know, I wanted Andrews Dino here. I knew known him for a long time, and we did that recording. And the the performance we're doing at Westport Coffeehouse Theater on the sixth of June is uh, with Michael Jeffrey Stevens, who's a brilliant, prodigious, you know, piano player composer, and we're going to use a guitar quartet with that presentation, My Guitar Quartet plus Michael Jeffrey Stevens, that was was being built. And uh, in addition to that, if, if, if you go to my websites, I think that's the best way, honestly, to see the scope of what I do or else it becomes ridiculously long talking about things you do. Because sure. everyone, everyone does a myriad of things to as artists, Like like most of us teach nowadays. When I first started out as a musician, not many people taught. Most they just played and did what yeah. they did, and then uh, the jazz studies phenomenon, where artists found that hey, this is another income stream, but it, and it's another way to contribute and make sure that people are getting the information. Then you have have these artists like Bobby and people like this teaching at the university level, and that became something. Then private lessons. Most everybody did private lessons. Those who could teach did that, but but that can be uh, an another way to share what you know about or and what you've learned about the history of the music uh, about things that you had to work through that took you years to work through maybe you can give somebody a a more straightforward path toward the same knowledge and I think that that's been happening which is a great thing and then I've always had interest intellectual interest in how things work. And I think that became part of me when I was a little kid. I've always had this entrepreneurial spirit. At 10 or 11 years old, on Saturday mornings when my brothers and sisters and friends were watching cartoons on TV, I was out along the side of the ditches of the highway. And if you're from a rural area, I grew up in Paola, Kansas. You, back in those days, you could go along the highway and uh, pick up pop bottles. And I'd take my little brother's wagon, his little flyer, red flyer wagon, and I'd I'd fill it up with spot bottles, and and then I'd go to the gas station and use the water faucet that they had on the outside, clean the bottles out, and then go to the grocery store, cash them in, and take the gas can and fill it up with a gallon of gas, and then take that home, grab the lawnmower and the the, uh, gas can, and by the time... They got out of the house at noon. I had made like fifty bucks mowing lawns. Well, but that's a little kid thinking, and no one told me to do that. I just saw the idea and the opportunity, and said, "Hey, man!" And then then I could mow these lawns for these old people. Some of the people in our neighborhood, who maybe their husband died, or maybe they're 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 both you know they can't mow their lawn or something like this. So I ended up like mowing a lot of grass and making some money that way, and then. It just continued. So, when I joined the army, I learned how to do business on a different level. And you know, you can imagine the army is like probably the most uh, detailed institution in our country, if you will. There's a manual for to do anything. If you look it up, how to put a, install a roll of toilet paper in the latrine, there's a there's a procedure for doing that, and it's it's there's diagrams and everything. Going through the Army band program and staying there for 22 years and rising up to the management level, the senior level, and being in charge of, of operating and taking care of people, that side of my brain is developed, fully developed, just like, just like it is when you do 22 years. And as an example, imagine this, 22 years of the time in the Army There was no year that I was in the service that I was not enrolled in a music course of some type at the college level. So not four years of college, not two years of college, not eight years of college, not 10 years of college, 22 years of college classes. I've got well over 230 undergraduate hours of college. That taking college after a while, I put it in perspective. It wasn't for a degree or to say I'm this, doctor, this, this, blah, blah, blah or or masters it or whatever it it was for the knowledge itself I, that's why i know how to compose music that's how i know how to arrange music that's how i know how to conduct i can conduct a band i can conduct ceremonies that's how it was just a it became a quest of gaining knowledge that is the balance of me as a person so when i come to the kansas city jazz scene the first few years i was here and under the guidance of al he says, get out to every jam session, play. That's what I did. I went to the foundation. I went to the blue room. And those are about the only places that were doing at that time. I'd be at the blue room. I'd be at the foundation. I'd be at the blue room. I'd be at the foundation. I'm a 45-year-old man, 46-year-old man there. And I, I was letting my hair grow. I have a big afro. And in my family, we don't have much gray hair. I still don't have very much gray hair to this day. So people didn't know I was like 45. They maybe thought I was 30 or 35 or something. That introduced me to the scene. And then I learned about the scene and how to contribute. So wanting to record, and that was my quest to do that, I needed a platform. I had been involved in, in distributing music worldwide by the Internet since the mid-'90s, starting out with MIDI files and news groups and things like that, and doing collaborations online with other people who were composers just by MIDI. Then when Internet technology got beyond the 16k modems dial up got to to cable and and you know that kind of speeds where you could use the mp3 technology and it came about i was able to learn about distributing music and learn about promoting music so i'd been studying that for probably about 10 years and then i got my opportunity to implement some of those ideas through a site called mp3.com when it was the place where independent artists could showcase their music. Now it's just like MySpace is turned into. I saw everything that's digital come about, you know, from the very beginning. And what is now is a lot more opportunities for artists to be able to reach the world independently. But you still need a platform, and that's what Artist Recording Collective became. I first started out working at and managing oh. Dean's Label that he started for grants basically it was part of when he put in for a grant they they said okay you have to purposely try to sell it blah blah blah. so he started this non-profit and he started his record label so i i operated his label for him based upon what i knew and they were cool with that and then when the idea became for more people i started my own label and uh because we didn't want to overrun his label, basically. The thing about learning how to operate a label, and I had nothing but time at that time. I wasn't doing anything except music. Uh My wife had, was teaching school still. She hadn't finished her teaching career. She was teaching school during the day, so I was practicing all day and just doing the music, putting together the, the label and, and, and all of that, the operations plan, the the, the business plan. You know, the marketing plan, how we're going to do that using the technology. And it, there was no model to do it. I was just doing this based on what I had learned at that point and what I saw was available and keeping track of the trends. And it, it started working. We ended up with starting with two friends of mine, Sumi Tanoka, a great piano player, her trio record with Rufus Reed on bass and Bob Ray on drums. And then Erica Lindsay, the other co-founder of ARC, her record with Sumi, they collaborated on a quartet, and, and it had Rufus and Bob as the other people in the group. So piano, bass, drums, and then tenor sax. So we used ARC as a platform to launch those releases and to add my independent record, Time Flies," my debut that I recorded in 1999. And, uh, so we started with those records. Uh, Long ago Code Today by Sumitonoka Trio was the very first album. And that basically catches you up with, with that platform. So that went along. We were unsolicited featured in, uh, in an article in Downbeat Magazine because of what I was doing with marketing, getting the noise and, and making, making some kind of impression on the general the mainstream jazz scene as a independent digital collective label that same year 2009 jazz ambassador magazine did a feature on us as a result of the uh downbeat feature so we got a lot of uh play that way and in then 2011 i was sitting at dinner with my wife terry and we were sitting at home and the phone rings like about 6.30 at night, and it's Greg Carroll from the Jazz Museum when he was CEO of the Jazz Museum in 2011. He said, hey, Chris, uh, you had put in for this marketing position, and I know what you're doing with your label, et cetera, et cetera. Are you still interested in doing that? And I said, are you kidding? Yes, I'd like to do that. So he said, okay, c- can you come by tomorrow at 5.30, and we'll talk about it, and I'll show you what we've got going. We're right in the middle of the festival. This is like in August. like you know, or and he said, we're getting ready for the festival in October. That's when they had it then. We need to get the marketing going. And I said, okay. So I went there, and we talked and came to an arrangement, and I hit the ground on that and recently left last June. So I've been gone from the museum for a year, about a year. June 30th it will be a year. And it was a great experience, but I'm glad that... uh I'm back to my art and being able to be an artist and a musician because a lot of people, they didn't even know I was a musician because when I was there, I was the marketing uh manager and director of communications. I did the operations. I was acting CEO when Greg left and and before, when they were doing the interim search and all of that. So it was a good fit because I learned a lot about the industry outside of, the music business and I learned a lot more about Kansas City that you can't learn without having a job like that or being in that type of position. And and it was a great learning experience. I wish them luck. I think they're I I think it's a great thing for Kansas City and for the music. But it, I, like I said, I am so glad to have the balance with my own art again, you know. That brings me to Firebird. While I was at the museum, I still kept writing, I was doing I was still kept teaching kids and things like this. In spite of that not really being my main job and that being a really a sixty hour a week job at and I'm being kind when I say that. It was it was the infrastructure, things like that, I mean but keeping that going, I I wanted to record my originals with the and I had the piano quartet and we started recording singles, boom, 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 and I was gonna I'm doing something uh, with that, taking a different uh, approach, my approach is that I'm releasing those as singles, and I've got a good mailing list and fan base built up from the MP3 days. That if I put out a single and say, "Hey, download this for 99 cents," most of them do it. If you can say it's still a dollar, I don't care if, if you have 10,000, 1,000 fans, 500,000 fans, or whatever. And if everybody downloads the song, you get that amount of money. So it, it's it's exponential. The possibilities are endless, and then it subsidizes your art and helps you be able to create. I'm all for I'm all for going for grants and things like that because some artists have to do that, or there's, that's the only way you could do certain things. But I also, with the technology today, and the resources for networking and synergy across platforms, you know, up and down, sideways, that type of uh networking collaboration, there there are ways for artists to be business people and to subsidize themselves. And and that's that's what I've done all my life. I'm not saying that's the only way to do it. My personality is built that way. I know that if I was just a cat that sat in a corner and, and you know and I saw myself doing it. You know, at certain points in my career, especially the years when I was emulating, you know, I, I'd spent a couple of years studying uh Charlie Parker, going through the Omnibook, you know, and then transcribing everything from records to every, every recording that he did. I mean, literally playing along with him, slowing it down to on a turntable, writing out all the notes and playing it with his inflection and all of that stuff. And then Cannonball, Phil Woods, you know, just just keep naming them. And then I started thinking and talking with people. There's a good mentor of mine who has moved to Kansas City now after we first met each other 40 years ago, Marcus Hampton. He's from the Hampton family uh, of Indianapolis. Uh, slide, and they're related to Lionel Hampton. He knew Freddie Hubbard, you know, JJ, all them people growing up as a matter of course. And Ham just told me one day, he says, yeah, man, that's that's good, but the goal is not that. All those people that you like, they didn't do that. And they would make fun of you for doing that, copying them. Learn what they're doing, but find, you have to find your own voice and you have your own story to tell. He you said, you've been through enough in your own life that you have a perspective and you know this music well enough. You know how to how it progresses to one in these different sequences that you know how to get there. You make a decision. And, and you can't help but say what they've said because you've studied them. But you've got to bring your own flavor. And that's what I've done, you know, that's what I think I found in Kansas City. You know, in the in the military you do a lot of repertory work, and that means playing Glenn Miller stuff or playing things that people are used to hearing on the radio or playing a, a, through composed music through symphonic wind ensembles, stuff like this. But it wasn't until I got to Kansas City, so the 16 years I've been back home, I have found my voice, and that happened for me, I would say, about 2007 when I had that monthly first Saturday of the month hit at the drum room when they had live music there. I I really was able to start working out the things that I theorized about and pract- was practicing, and I had Roger as my piano player, and then I built the band from there. Sometimes I had Will Matthews. He was in my guitar group, and... You know, I played with James Ward, played with, you know, Jeff, of course. Brandon Draper was on a couple of those gigs. A, a lot of great musicians, and I I was working that language out. And then having the courage, you know, in a town like Kansas City, where we're so heavily bop-oriented and Charlie Parker-oriented and real-book-oriented and where there aren't very many composers, true composers of music, There, everybody really... There's a thing that you do and a thing you don't do, so it takes a lot of courage, it seems, to play what you're hearing artistically. There are there are courageous artists here doing it. I mean, Mark Sutherland, as an example. I mean, you got Jeff Harshbarger. He's a creative guy. Bobby. I mean, Bobby can play anything. A lot of people think, oh, he's just a... Be-. No, man, he he can play any way you want to play, and that's, yep. that's what I hold as a standard since I've come back home. It's like, okay... I'm trying to contribute my voice and I I know the continuum of this music and I know I'm a part of it but I had to connect with Kansas City and then come into my own as an artist not not all the stuff I learned you know uh, I mean all the stuff you could regurgitate when I started putting lines together that were my own and I think you can hear that in my music at least at least I can I can hear oh okay I know I was going here, and that's the way I think, and that's what I've learned about, and then I'm writing this harmony to elicit this. And and a person asked me, like you mentioned Firebird, that track, that is like a, a culmination for me in the sense that I've been exposed to music that isn't just a jazz quartet, that isn't just a jazz quintet. Or a big band. I've been in explosive music. I've played with a symphony orchestra. I was a soloist with the whole symphony orchestra at 22. I've played with wind ensembles. When I play in wind ensembles, I play clarinet with all those cool parts and all the stuff. I've studied composers like, uh, those guys, Schillinger, Holst, all these people, you know, Granger, things like this. I mean, that that's beautiful music. So Firebird was a way for me to integrate my wife, who's a flute player, we met in an Army band like four years ago, and that way for us to make music again. And then when I wrote that, that selection, I wrote that in mine as a vehicle to be able to improvise over, but I also wanted those colors in the jazz context. When I arranged the music and we went in the studio, the quartet, we went in the studio without the flutes, and we just played it down. And when I was taking my solo... I remembered all of the lines that they would be playing. So I wanted to interact with those lines that I had written as well. And that goes along with where my philosophy is right now. Every sound that you hear while I'm playing, I am trying to use that as the solo that I'm taking, not not trying to play a whole bunch of patterns or things that I've memorized because I already did that, been there, done that, I'm 61, you know, I'm not going to, try to play uh, this eight-bar segment of confirmation out of the Omni book and pass it off like I made it up to the un- unsuspecting. I'm trying to to interact in the moment like jazz is with the music that's going on and reaching the audience that's listening. And I have found, Joe, that when you do that, every piece of music that I've heard that has done that or achieved that from my perspective it's timeless. I mean, you can listen to it, you can listen to it over and over again, and enjoy it and glean something from it. It isn't like a pop tune that you get sick of it because the lyrics are old or whatever. Or it's the same, it's the same uh, vamp or popular groove of this era with different lyric over it or something, or different twist at the bridge or something. But jazz isn't like that. Jazz is good jazz music, what we call jazz music or improvised music or, or whatever you want to call it is is timeless and and that's not just the the golden era dexter them Cats miles it's cannibal it's that that's not just the golden era it's all jazz. you can listen to people today who are playing music like that that you can go back and it's, it's because it comes from that sincere place. It's not trying to be a product necessarily, or they're not trying to be his. And then all of these people have something in 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 common. And I found myself, when I came back here at 45 years old, and I really had something to say as an artist, not just repeating, repeat and repeat. And, and the reason I, I believe that is at 25 or 30, I had not lived enough life to have any different colors on my palette to paint from. I didn't have all the dark colors that happen in life. I didn't have all the bright and the different shades and all of that to pull from. And then I had not gone through very much adversity. And and I think that you can you can show a lot of promise when you're young. And I tell this to my students as well. I I've I've had the the opportunity and good fortune to work with some very gifted young artists, and most of whom are still doing music or professional musicians or teachers, et cetera, et cetera, and, and they're doing well. Uh, but I always encourage them, keep your growth and don't don't be too hard on yourself because you have to live some life. You have to fall in love. you got to have your heart broken. you got to look your first man child or, or woman child in the eye and put food on the table for them and see what that's like. And then let's see what your art says. You know, it's, it's easy if you're if you're going from high school to college to graduate school to doctor school to teaching at college to talk crap. I mean, but but I don't know what you're talking because I don't know what you've gone through. Besides that, it's 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 two dimensional in a lot of ways because you don't have that other dimension there.
0: If
1: if you have it in context, if you have it in perspective, but if you're trying to to talk at this deep groove. About the music, you can only go so far. I mean, when uh, my favorite musician, my favorite musician in Kansas City, and probably my favorite sax player today, the modern mm-hmm. sax player is Bobby Watson. When Bobby plays one note, <laughs> you hear all of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you do. You you hear all of that. All, he could play. He can play a million notes in like thirteen seconds. But yep. when Bobby plays one note, you just shut up. You say, okay, all right. Okay, I get it. Yep. Now that's what I want to be when I grow up. You know. That's that, now I and mean, our styles are totally different. But that's the depth of his music is unquestionable. And there are young people that have that kind of depth. You can hear them becoming, but what they're saying is the truth. So I, I really appreciate that part of the music. And I appreciate the fact that it, that it has always been a measure where sincerity is valued and the individual seeking is valued and when i get around people who don't get that i understand where they're at and that's okay because we're all there at some point in time and the object is not there's only so much you know we could have a thousand neon jazz programs and it would not reach all of the artists that are worthy. I, I feel thankful to be on this, so that someone can, someone like me maybe, can hear what I'm saying and say, "Who the heck is Chris Burnett? Who's Christopher Burnett? I've never heard of him. Oh, let me look him up, and go, wow, this guy has actually done something, but I haven't heard of very much of him in the mainstream, et cetera, et cetera, just because of the course of my life. That's that's how my career was built. I don't desire anything more than than that in a sense i i would like people to interact with my music in my career of course but the point of it isn't that the point of it is is the art is doing it that's that's the reason i chose to subsidize myself through an art career you know, i wanted to live like a human being and i wanted to study this music when i found it that was a whole thing I, I just had to find the next answer i had to turn the page And then when I got that page, I needed to turn the page, and I'm still turning the page with that same
0: excitement and enthusiasm, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Christopher, what you have done over this time that we've been speaking is you've done a miraculous way, and it must be your journalistic phone, of taking all of these pieces that I was going to ask you, and all of this is in your voice, and I like that. This will be the first time I think I've asked one question and you've summed up, I think who I want to know who you are, and I want to present to my audience. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And as always, thanks to Christopher for being so warm and open for all the music, and for being the first person on the Neon Jazz interview series to do the entire interview, answering everything after I ask the first question. <laughs> if you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, visit Jazz at YouTube.com, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Beyond jazz.